if they were different, my life could be better. If they didn't choose, didn't require these things, my life would be better. Why are they so strict or whatever? Um, which may be true. I mean, obviously, it may be true. I'm not saying that they're they're false, but that perspective is disempowering, and it's much more empowering to have the perspective of okay, that's the way they are. I see. What do I need to do to get to my goal, given mm -hmm. the fact that that's the way they are? Yes. Uh, so, sort of like the analogy I try to give maybe is like you're playing one of these games, these quest games, mm -hmm. okay, where you have to you have to run around and complete a mission, and you encounter someone, some troll who is not letting you cross the bridge. You don't think to yourself, ah, this troll, possible, why is this troll not letting me cross the bridge? You think, oh, that's part of the game. That's what's written into the game. The, the creators wrote that in. Or find the piece of gold that you want and give it to him and he'll let you cross the bridge. So you just find out that the people who, uh, you can start thinking that they're blocking you from getting what you want. Just think of, well, what do I need to give them to, to let him, you know. Move on. Yeah, exactly. Hey Andrew, thanks for coming on the show today. Really appreciate you showing up. And thank you for being the first guest from Jamaica. So definitely representing for your island. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Yeah, good to, good to be here. Uh, I watched a few of the podcasts and I'm excited to, to share. Fantastic. So can you tell us where you live currently and a bit about what you're working on at the moment? Absolutely. I live in South Florida right now um, with my wife and four kids. I am working uh, at NVIDIA and working on a number of different projects, um, including teleconferencing, you know, video conferencing of the future, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps with avatars. And uh, also, I'm, I'm interested in VR, AR. I, I, I want to get them to build a, a robot that uh, allows you to do VR, AR remotely, like, you know, teleport to a new location, so. Interesting, all right. And, and are you involved with the, the eye gazing project at NVIDIA as, as well? Uh, project Maxine, you're talking about Project Maxine. Maxine, I believe so, yes. Not really, I mean, I, I, okay. I know those, that team, I interact with them, um, but I haven't contributed to that project. It's a great, Perfect. great project. I think it's going to have a big impact. So, great. Um, so, why did you choose to work at Nvidia? That's a good question. Yeah, I well, probably had it on the pay, right? <laughs> right, the pay was good. Um, mm -hmm. I was working at Magic Leap. I'll, yeah, I'll that's a that's story. a serious company as well. Yeah, Magic Leap was it's, it's pretty serious. A good company. I loved it. Uh, uh, they're doing some cool stuff, uh, very interesting work. And so that's where I was for the last sort of two years since 2018. I was there for two years. Um, then about a year ago, uh, they ran into some financial difficulties. Um, you know, because of the pandemic, it was tough to raise money. They're mm -hmm. still a startup technically, even though they're quite big. So they don't really have uh, enough money coming in, enough revenue to support themselves. And they had to lay off some people uh, and things were changing. Uh, things yes. were changing at Magic Leap and um, I thought it was a good time to look around. I uh, did some interviews with companies like Apple, uh, Facebook and so on. Mm -hmm. um, NVIDIA wasn't on the radar. I didn't really consider huh. NVIDIA a place that I would work. Uh, but they 
then a recruiter called me and said, actually, the day I was going to sign uh, an offer from Apple, um, the recruiter called me and said, hey, uh, you know, we want you to come work for NVIDIA. And so okay. I looked, looked at what NVIDIA was doing. I talked to some people uh, at NVIDIA and realized they're, they're much more um, much more interesting company than I had imagined. I thought they were just a, a gaming, a gaming or card mm -hmm. manufacturer, right? Yeah, you, you get graphics cards for your games, that's it. But no, they're, they're doing some uh, incredible stuff, incredible stuff with AI. They're, they're very strategic, very future looking. Um, I talked to Jensen uh, during that process. And, wow. Yeah, and, and he <laughs> it was clear after talking to him that he has a vision for what NVIDIA can do that's much bigger than, than what I thought they were capable mm -hmm. of. Um, and so I started going back and looking at some of the keynotes and um, I realized they're, they're, they're really poised to sort of take over the world, you know? Um, yes. With their strategy, NVIDIA should become, unless something changes, should become the primary provider of computation in the world. Okay. Uh, with their GPUs, with their acquisition of ARM, Mellanox, mm -hmm. uh, put those together. Um, they can provide the best data centers and so and, and the cheapest compute. So anybody who uses any kind of compute, your smartphone is doing anything in the cloud, in the future, it's going to be primarily provided by NVIDIA, I believe. So, and that's quite cool that you know we. I think I feel extremely fortunate to look at NVIDIA and just see how much progress they're making and that type of vision that they have. So. You know, yeah. glad we're both there. Yeah, me too. So <clears throat> we do the show to encourage people from the Caribbean region, especially to pursue data-driven careers. Uh, so can you share with us your view of how you think machine learning, AI, and even more broadly tech, because I believe that you need to have a good thriving tech ecosystem before you hop into machine learning. Um, and yeah. those data-driven careers can play a role in the Caribbean's future. Sure. Um... It used to be the case that if you wanted to work in tech, you had to go to Silicon Valley. Uh, that was a place to be. And Silicon Valley used to be a place that made silicon, like they actually made chips. Some of those uh, original companies, that's what they did. And, and they, they made the hardware chips that technology ran on. They were slowly replaced by software companies, primarily Google, Facebook, um, Apple is sort of a mix. Um, Amazon is potentially a mix too. Uh, Microsoft is not really Silicon Valley, but uh, it's one of the big ones. Um, and when that happened, I was surprised that. Uh, tech didn't just lose a centralized location. You would think with software, there's no reason to have a, a physical location where everybody has to come together and work. Um, it, you know, as opposed to hardware, you're building stuff, you got to have hands-on. Uh, and it took a pandemic, I think, for people to realize that um, you don't really need this centralized location. Yes. Uh, it's just as easy 
for me, I, I live in Florida. I can, I just need a computer, good internet connection, mm-hmm. maybe some equipment, and I can do work that way. And I'm, all my interactions are remote, um, you know, with my colleagues. And there's no reason why that couldn't expand internationally. So if you're in the Caribbean and you know how to code or are willing to learn, you can uh, do anything that someone in America can do, that someone in California can do. Uh, You could work for a company, one of these large companies if you wanted, or you can do your own thing and you can have a big impact. Uh, Software has this Software has this multiplicative capability that we've never seen before in the world. It's, um, you know, I write one block of software and I'm on an open source project. I commit that it goes into the repo. Now everybody starts from there and can build on top of that. And someone else makes a small contribution that moves everybody forward. And so, um, if you can get involved in some of these projects, some of these open source projects, uh, you know, you can really, really make a big impact. And so I, I believe tech in general is, can be huge uh, in the Caribbean. And it's really sort of only limited by history, meaning huh. okay. people there haven't seen it, they haven't experienced it, they haven't lived it. I don't have many examples to say, oh, here's someone who lives in, he maybe lives in Jamaica. We've, we've seen some examples of people who left Jamaica or left the Caribbean and, and were successful, but there are not that many examples of people who live there and are able to turn, um, turn their, their technical prowess into, um, into success. Yes. But there's no fundamental reason why that, that can't happen. It's just, it, it, no one has has done it. It's kind of like the the four minute mile, so to speak, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and the moment that it comes through, you just see many more examples sort of show up, right? Exactly. And the only reason you didn't have those many examples before is that people are like, no, that's not that's not possible. I'm not even going to try. It. But then once you see one, then you you go for it. So I encourage you uh, to not wait for that one, or or maybe to be that one. Um, if you're watching this podcast. There's no reason why I couldn't. There, there's no fundamental reason why, um, why you have to sit on the sidelines and, and wait. Yeah, and wait. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you calling that out uh, because I do think we have an advantage in the Caribbean geographically in terms of time zone, uh, ability yes. to speak English very well. Yes. All of those things, and you know that multicultural multiculturalism to to interface with many people from many different races, I think, is a a strong point there. Yes, I mean that's a great point. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. The other um, hubs where tech is 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 bigger would be like China, India. Um, we've kind of accepted that you know some really good good talent over there, uh, but yeah, they have severe disadvantages compared to the Caribbean. Um, you know, South America is kind of like the same time zone, but uh, there's a language barrier. So there was really, you know, the Caribbean is, is, is really poised to, to take over. And um, yeah, I want to see it happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hopefully your journey will inspire uh, some other folks from home and even in the diaspora who don't live at home to, 
to even push for even more success. So in the first segment, uh, we're going to dive into your career journey. And you have three degrees from MIT, right? That's the big boy school. And you've been a senior and a principal engineer at some top companies like Google, Magic Leap, and now NVIDIA, which to me is crazy impressive. So super excited to learn. Um, so let's begin at the start. Uh, tell us what you're like when you're growing up at home or you're like in high school. And what's really interesting is I want to know, you know, were you super studious? What were your strengths and weaknesses? And I, I like to see maybe people yeah. kept the path or did a big shift, you know? Right. Um, so I was born and raised in Jamaica. Uh, my dad was Jamaica, but my mom was from Trinidad. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so she uh, she's, uh, I think, super smart. She is maybe the brains of the family. Um, and and so we had, had two brothers, so it's three boys, and we kind of grew up. She helped us with our education. And, uh, you know, the educational system in Jamaica, I think, is great. We, we All three of us benefited from that. But I would say my particular personality was not well suited for that kind of system hmm. um it's sort of british based a little bit and compared to the american system it's maybe a little bit more focused on discipline and on hard work as opposed to uh maybe creativity and over-the-box thinking which is kind of one of my strengths so I was not a good student. Um, certainly, I was not as good of a student as my older brother, um, who, who was really focused and could, could do the work and, and study and do well. Um, however, I still managed to do fairly well in school you know, with the help of my siblings and, and my mom uh, and my dad to some extent. Um, and there was a couple of uh, key moments. Um, one of them was uh, there was a someone by the name of Dennis Minot in Jamaica who has kind of spearheaded a lot of this idea that hey, Jamaica is full of, of, of really gifted students and we don't we don't do a good job in the educational system of identifying them and uh, encouraging their gifts. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's more stifling. They get they they usually get um, stifled more than encouraged wow. uh, just because of the nature of the, of the system and so he you know he of course my parents encouraged them to have me to get me tested and, and you know i was shown that i was sort of smart smarter than i my age should have predicted um and really uh, with his encouragement I, I i for example he encouraged me to do the sats and and uh, he, had, he had a little class where he taught people how to do this and, and spoke about the American universities and how great they are. And uh, My older brother and I both went to his classes and because of his encouragement, applied to American colleges and got in. Um, and I think without him, I don't think I, I, I would have necessarily done that. Um, but I think I needed to. Uh, I'm not sure how I would have done going to UE. Uh, UE mm -hmm. is a great school. I mean, I'm nothing against you. I taught there for two years. Um, or or we, we have another one in Jamaica. At the time it was called CAST, or it's now called UTEC. Um, 
and I think there's even even more that have popped up since I left. But um, I think I needed to to go away to study to to America and to see something different, right, and get a different perspective as well. Right? Different perspective, exactly. And and that combination worked well. That combination of the rigor in the high school years from the the British system, and then going to a school like MIT. It gave me an advantage, I think, against my peers who came from American schools, which were, you know, they weren't bad schools, they were, they were great. Mm -hmm. But I think it, it, it certainly, uh, I was certainly on par and able to, to compete with them. Wow. Um, so, so that worked well. I, I forgot what the point of this, or what I was saying. Is no, so I, I ha I'm happy that you, you kind of brought up the fact that you were not the best student quote unquote um by the system yeah right and and i think that's very important to highlight because i think if people look at your resume and they see mit they see google and they're, they're like oh yeah andrew is a he was beating book in high school and and all this type of stuff but not necessarily knowing that was not your most preferred way of learning and yeah, so i went to one of the top high schools in kingston called campion college and i was doing uh lower six there Mm -hmm. One of my subjects was art because they did not have uh, a subject I wanted to do, which was further math. They okay. had a philosophy that if they offer further math, not enough people are going to get A's and they, they want to keep their, you know, their grade. Oh, that sucks. I know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's still their philosophy, but um, mm -hmm. so they didn't even offer it as a subject. And so I was doing art, which, which I liked art, but somehow me and the teacher didn't get along and I didn't do any of the homeworks and I was failing. Um, and my parents decided we talked to the principal there and my parents decided to, to move me to a different school. So I went to hmm. Monroe College, which was a boarding school uh, in the rural part of Jamaica. And it was through some close personal family friends. That's how we, we knew about the school and were able to get in and get transferred in sort of, uh, you know, after I had done like half a year in lower six. Um, and so that was, you know, if whether you want to call it divine providence or just luck or, or, or whatever it was, it, it, if that didn't happen, I don't think I would have made it to MIT, for example. Yes. Um, my grades, at, at camp, like I said, I was failing one subject. Um, the other two were fine, but when I went to this new school, Monroe, the teachers all thought I was I was good because they didn't really know that I didn't do my homework and stuff like that. So they had a good impression of me. They were able to write me mm. good recommendation letters. Okay. Um, and then after they sent off those recommendation letters, then they realized, wait a second, this kid is a slacker. <laughs> One of the teachers, actually, my further math teacher, kicked me out of his class. No way. Yeah, he said, I would, I would never have thought that. Yeah, it, it was just weird. It was a boarding school. Um, so I didn't have anywhere to go. But he said, don't come back to class until I do all the homework that I've missed. Mm -hmm. Which was the best thing that could have happened to me, I think. Um, huh. It forced me to, to sit down and do the homework. I mean, I... It wasn't for lack of ability. It was just you, you could care less, right? To some right, degree. Care less. Like ah, I know that stuff. I don't need to do it. Hmm. Um, but he forced me to do it. And if I didn't do it, I don't think I would have gotten it, um, the A in that course. So, so that's further maths. And, and and that's how I kind of and 
landed at MIT. Uh, I think that was a big part of it. Mm -hmm. So you, you end up at MIT now. Uh, so you leave home in from Jamaica yeah. and you land there and you're with the, the best of the best in the world, as they say. Yeah. And tell us about that experience. Is it is it true what, what you sort of hear about MIT when it comes to everyone's super sharp, you know, everyone's crazy hardworking? What was your experience like? It wasn't so much that that people were crazy hardworking. I mean, there were some people who worked crazy amounts, more than me, certainly. Yes. Um, but what was comforting at MIT is I felt a little bit more at home, meaning I was sort of a nerd. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a little bit not, I was one of the cool kids, certainly in school. Okay. There were the, there were the cool people, you know, they were, the parents were rich and they, the parents drove the best cars and they were popular and attractive. And you knew who those were. Um, I wasn't one of them. I was sort of a nerd. Um, but at MIT, almost everyone there had that same experience. I was a nerd. And so it, it was cool to be among people who didn't make fun of nerds. In fact, they, they were proud mm -hmm. to be nerds. Yes. Um, that was kind of one of the mottos. We had a pin that said nerd pride. And, and we ah, okay. um, yeah, were proud to be nerds and to be into things like math and and calculus in our spare time and stuff like that and and that was really really great for me um just that environment got to meet some good friends mm -hmm. i had that undergrad experience um again you know wasn't wasn't necessarily the best student in my undergrad days uh, i remember um again there was a, a class that i didn't do the homework in <laughs> And but I but I did well in the tests. Like I did mm. a B. I could get a B based on my test scores. But when I got my report card, I'd been given an F. I called up <laughs> professor and was like, what, "What's going on here? Why are you giving me an F?" And he said, "Well, in the first class, you told everybody that the homework is mandatory. If you don't have uh -huh. homework, you can't pass the class." I said, "Oh yeah, I remember you said that, but uh, come on, I mean." Let me do the homework over the summer. Let me turn it in. I, and mm. you know, and he was like, "Well, was there some special circumstance? Uh, why you didn't do it? And, you know, were you sick or something?" I said, "No." <laughs> and he said, "Okay, well, you have an F." Wow. And this was a required course for my major, so I eventually had to realize that uh, it wasn't the system fighting against me. He mm. wasn't punishing me, um, and. Uh, and that was what I felt at first, like, ah, oh, so my professor, but rather, uh, this was, these are the rules. If mm -hmm. I want to pass that course, I have to do the homework. And I, it changed my perspective. It, it's one of my life lessons. Um, that was the benchmark, essentially, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you do this, this, this. These are the rules of the game. You do this to get this. If you don't do mm -hmm. this, you don't get this. I mean, that's, that's it. Um, it's not a secret. Yes. Um, and viewing, viewing the world in terms of, uh, they're against me uh, can be discouraging. Um, and I recommend don't do that. And, and do you find that attitude um, sort of manifests itself in, in people who maybe see things a little differently? They, the system, you know, let's call it the system, they don't fit as well as you're saying. And 
like things are maybe bored, especially in school for me. I, I could care less about school my entire school career. So I, I'm very happy that I'm not the only one who was a quote unquote slacker in school. Um, I would just say you're a higher level slacker than I was <laughs> to some degree. And yeah, so do, do you think that attitude manifests itself in in people who just see things differently? And, and that's a challenge that you'll, you tend to have to overcome at some point? Uh, which attitude? You mean the one about... The yeah, just me? the system is against me and you know, screw this. Yeah, I see it. I guess where I see it coming up now is, is now I'm a parent of uh, three teenage, teenage kids and then mm. one uh, toddler. <laughs> um, for some reason, it, I see them having that sort of attitude like... Um, thinking that, ah, my parents are so unfair. They want me to do this and that. And that guy's parents aren't like that. Um, mm -hmm. But then th that's disempowering. So that takes the responsibility and puts it in the hands of somebody else. If they were different, my life could be better. If they didn't choose, didn't require these things, my life would be better. Why are they so strict or whatever? Um, which may be true. I mean, all those things may be true. I'm not saying that they're, they're false, but that's, that perspective is disempowering. And it's much more empowering to have the perspective of, okay, that's the way they are. I see. What do I need to do to get to my goal, given mm -hmm. the fact that that's the way they are? Yes. Uh, so, sort of like the analogy I try to give maybe is like you're playing one of these games these quest games, mm -hmm. okay, where you have to you have to run around and complete a mission, and you encounter someone, some troll who is not letting you cross the bridge. You don't think to yourself, ah, this troll, possible. Why is this troll not letting me cross the bridge? You think, oh, that's part of the game. That's just mm -hmm. written into the game. The creators wrote that in. I have to find the spell to 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 use on the, the troll, troll and. Or find the piece of gold that he wants and give it to him, and he'll let, <laughs> then he'll let me cross the bridge. So you just find out the, the people who, uh, you, instead of thinking that they're blocking you from getting what you want, just think of, well, what do I need to give them to, to let them, you know. Move so, on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that could be your parents, that could be your teacher's system, um, whatever it is. Um, so. Yeah, I think without you knowing, you, you probably surfaced the first piece of advice. I don't know if you, you kept it in or or you had it there, you know? And yeah. I, I think that's actually quite important for this newer generation who will experience things very differently to maybe when we went to school and they'll see many more examples of people bucking, so-called bucking the system. So I think it'll be an interesting one to manage. So I wanted to ask about your, tell us about the affinity for electrical engineering and I believe it was electrical engineering and computer science. Why did you sort of do both? versus let's say doing one or is that an mit thing that's an mit thing yeah okay okay electrical engineer and computer science is the name of the department so mm. really i studied more electrical engineering ah um but my degree has computer science on there and i had to take a few computer science courses but i would not say i would not call myself necessarily a computer scientist understood um, yes now why did i uh, maybe go on to study that 
in grad school. In fact, why did I do grad school? That's an interesting. Yeah, that's well. <laughs> so funny. Enough, funny quick aside. Uh, I interviewed a gentleman named uh, Doctor Kokaram. So he's at uh, Trinity College Dublin, and I made this, I usually make the statement that people who do PhDs are crazy, and he said no, they're actually just weird. And, and, you know, he has one as well. So I, I kind of wanted to bring that up as a funny aside. So Yes, I know Anil quite well. Um, me and him worked together when... Oh, cool. Google. Yeah, he was at YouTube at the time. Wow. And, um, Small world, man. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, it was Trini. <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. I, I immediately was like, hey, Trini accent. Okay. <laughs> um, good guy. So, yes, grad school. Tell us about why you did it um, and... Yeah, what do you think about it now? All right, I'll just tell you how I sort of stumbled into it. Um, hmm. Similarly to how I stumbled into, you know, changing schools, high schools, and... which kind of helped me, uh, I think, get into MIT. I stumbled into it in the following way. I'd taken a class with a professor named Al Oppenheim at MIT. And I didn't do very well in his class. Uh, I never, I didn't, I hardly did the problem sets, the, the, what, what we call homework. And I remember I, was, I was, thought I was gonna fail the class. And so I went to his office hours. So these are mm-hmm. office hours, he holds them every week. People come with questions, they're struggling with the material. Um, and I've I'd never gone to one of those before. So, but I went to this one and I, he thought, oh, okay, I haven't seen before. Maybe he needs some help with some of the material. I asked him, well, what does he think? Should I, should I drop the course? Am I going to fail? Because if I'm going to fail, I just want to drop it so it doesn't show up on my, mm-hmm. uh, my GPA, you know? And if, of course, he was a little annoyed um, that that's why I was there. But he looked at my, he opened the thing, he looked at my grades and said, hey, tell you what, Andrew, if you ace the final, if you ace the final, you can get an A on the course still. Wow. I'm huh. like, oh, really? And he says, yeah, yeah. If you ace the final, you can get an A on the course. So I didn't drop it. I, uh, you know, tried to maybe catch up a little bit. Um, I did the final and I ended up getting a B in the course, Ooh. which was my highest grade that semester. I had a B and I think three C's. Um, okay. Okay. Now, I should tell you that I was an undergrad. I was hardly doing the work. I was staying up late with friends. We were just chatting. We would, <laughs> we would just like play games. We would watch movies. And I had so much freedom. I didn't really have this before. And it was just like friends were so, it was just so important to me to interact with friends. Mm-hmm. And um, I wasn't eating well. I wasn't sleeping well. I was undergrad. I wasn't doing my laundry, so I would just like pull out dirty clothes out of the bin to try to put them on. Uh, a little a life. Yeah, uh, it was a mess, and it showed. It reflected in my in the, output, in the academic performance. In my performance, right? Yeah. Then um, MIT has this thing where you can do one extra year to get a master's degree. So I thought that, that's a great mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. But I also um, uh, had a, a girlfriend from like high school days and she was doing law school in you know Jamaica and in uh, Barbados at UE in Barbados 
and she was graduating right at sort of the time when the end of my four years and um i didn't want to lose her mm -hmm. and so i asked her to marry me we got married at the end of the four years and so my fifth year that extra one year when i was doing the master's degree i was now living in married student housing interesting so i wasn't in the undergrad dorm anymore my, me and my friends weren't staying up late i was just there with her and i was sleeping better mm -hmm. i was eating better okay i was doing my homework because i'd come home and would hang out and then i'd have all this time i'm like oh i'll do all the homework and did the homework um and i took another class from that same professor who had seen me before and you know i got like an a plus i the, the, the class project at the end that you're supposed to like do see who can get the biggest um whatever signal processing thing mm -hmm. i i beat the tas by like a factor of 100 what <laughs> okay and so that I caught his well. attention yeah it caught his attention and then he remembered me from the <laughs> the class I'm like why aren't you the kid that came i was trying to drop the class and at the time you had like purple hair and orange hair and i was like yeah that was me that was me <laughs> and he asked me well what changed um and i thought about it a second i said well wendy mm -hmm. uh, who's my wife i mean um it's like a circumstantial change and yeah. it made a big difference in my grades and he was like okay all right good good to know um and he asked me so you know are you applying for the phd program mm. and i said no wasn't planning to oh no he asked me if, if i'm going to do the test there was a phd uh test called the preliminary written exam that you know all the grad students need to do when they come in like you know test is coming up next week are you going to do it? I said, no, I wasn't planning to apply to a PhD program. He said, you should, you should do the test. <laughs> and of course, he's one of the most respected professors uh, mm -hmm. at MIT. And so he says I should do it. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Um, and of course, I knew he would write me a good recommendation. So I applied right, right. Uh, and got in and, and he was my thesis supervisor. So that's pretty cool. So you went from a Slacker student and the professor saw you and you cleaned up and then he gave you a shot it seems like yeah but but here's the question why didn't i just do that myself what, mm. like why didn't i just start doing the homeworks and um like getting sleep and eating well and attending the lectures awake instead of <laughs> falling asleep in the back those are all things i could have done those are those are not difficult things to do mm -hmm. um yeah. Yeah. So, what would you? Wh why do you think you weren't able to do it, or, or what would you tell yourself? You know, looking back now, I was just—I didn't know what I had. I didn't know. Hmm. I didn't know how important, like this college experience was. I didn't know that it was a great opportunity to learn. I should take advantage of it. I didn't know it was costing so much money, and um, I just was like. I was clueless. Unaware, yeah. Unaware, immature, maybe. Sure, um, sure, and that's that's undergrad, I guess, to some degree. And so now you've entered your PhD, and you're with one of the most 
respected professors at MIT. Um, tell us about that experience and uh, how did your discipline change in this new in this new leg of the journey? Um, yeah, that was uh, that was a good experience. It was certainly fun to work for him. The research was interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea of trying to come to something new that no one has ever thought of or no one's ever thought of that way and finding finding those nuggets uh, was was very interesting. He this professor was also just very much into this idea of like creativity, promoting creativity. We, he started a little group that met once a week where we were discussing creativity and how to promote and encourage creativity. Okay. Creative thinking. You know, he shared that he would do meditation to help his creativity. Someone else shared mm -hmm. that, well, they would, um, you know, like comedy is kind of how they think of creativity. Um, we had people of different religions in the group. It was, it, it was really quite interesting. And, uh, and so like, for example, one of these groups, one of the problems in my thesis had this idea, this solution, but we had no idea what, we, what, what it would solve, like what problem would solve. And we're in, in these creative brainstorming meetings, someone was able to say, hey, what about this problem over here? It will, the missing pixel problem, this could be used. I'm like, ah, great. And so I, that last key piece of my thesis um, came from just one of those brainstorming meetings. Um, and that became sort of one of my favorite things to do in mm -hmm. life, really, in my career, is to get people together who are creative, help them to get over the uh, the stigma of saying stupid things, um, and brainstorm comfort ideas and feed off each other. Have the ideas feed off each other. The comfort, like things that you could never, like one person wouldn't be able to come up with, uh, but like three or four people together, each bringing a piece of it. Uh, could come up with so, I you know that's a very interesting concept because I've been thinking a lot of, about this in the context of school. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, the way that you are trained in, I would say, both American and formal British education, it's it's very singular. You're, you're by yourself. You're repeating the same exact thing, or you're receiving the same exact thing as everyone else, and you're not necessarily encouraged, like you're saying to come together as a group and maybe brainstorm, maybe in some projects, but at the end of it, it is always so constrained that you end up coming back to the same thoughts that everyone else would have uh, sort of generated. Um, what do you think the opportunity is there for not necessarily in school, you can change the education system, but for people outside, especially younger people in school in high school who get very bored at school to, to participate in those things. I think this is something that we should encourage from uh, from early, yeah, mm. early school, high school, um, because I think that creativity, this this ability to create and and see new connections, um, like peaks in those early years. I see. Uh, okay. Yeah. And I think really like encouraging that, harnessing that. And it doesn't have to be through some sort of academic exercise. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think really got me into 
problem solving was when I was a kid, we used to work on puzzles. Right. Um, so, so my family had a subscription to this magazine that had puzzles and the puzzles were always kind of different, interesting crossword puzzles or math puzzles or logic puzzles. And, and we would, my brothers and I would try to solve these. Um, and there was this like, especially in a group, you're working as tough on a group and someone says something like, aha, that leads to this and ah, and then you've all of a sudden together, you've conquered this, this puzzle, this, and you have this eureka moment, which gives you that, that uh, sort of pleasure. Um, and that's what got me into like, I think research, mm -hmm. um, some of these like invention and innovation that we do, uh, in, in some of these companies, um, came from some of that. So great. And what, what, are, as we sort of tie off on, on the PhD thread, what would, what advice would you give to people in high school or in the undergrad or in their masters thinking about pursuing a PhD, be it at a top school like MIT or not, and what are things that they should keep in mind to, to have the best journey there? I used to be unsure, shortly after I got my PhD, I joined Texas Instruments and I was kind of looking at where I was in my career versus others who didn't do a PhD. Maybe they just did a master's degree and then they started working. So while I was doing my PhD for four years, they were uh, working for four years and getting raises and promotions along the way. Right. So I came in sort of junior, but you know, same age as people who had more experience, but I had a PhD and I didn't really see advantages at the time, especially like, looking at salary, you don't necessarily have a salary advantage. Early um, on, at least, right? Early on, because they have been having these raises for the last four years, right? Uh, but then, certainly, as my career has progressed, I would say um, the PhD really did help me. So there are certain fields where if you do a PhD, pretty much the only thing you can do is teach or become an academic or become a scholar. But engineering is not like that. Um, engineering, you can do a PhD and then you can go work and you can do uh, very well. You can do very advanced things in, in, in some of these companies. You can work for uh, apples of the world and build really cool and interesting things uh, that haven't existed before. Um, and if you, I would say if you can do a PhD, uh, yeah, you should do it. And if you think, you can't, that you probably are wrong. You probably can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always say the, uh, the smartest people don't finish the PhDs. The, the hardest working ones yeah. tend to. Yeah. I think that's when I appreciated the, um, benefit of hard work was to be able mm -hmm. to get that. Yeah. Great. And so you taught at UE in, on Mona campus. Uh, so tell us about that experience and, you know, maybe what you hope maybe it's not necessarily changed by now, but what would you want students maybe at that university if, if this gets there to pay attention to? Okay. I'll tell you the story and maybe um, we can kind of weave through if, if anything mm -hmm. seems interesting. Uh, so part of my undergrad was paid for by a scholarship um, that I'd gotten uh, through 
something called the OAS, Organization of American States, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. And it required me to return to my country of origin to work for at least two years was the was stipulation. Part of the deal. Yeah. yeah, that was stipulation, right? And so I knew after graduating, after I got a PhD, I'll go back to Jamaica. Um, my uh, wife was the daughter of the campus registrar at UE Mona, actually. So I was, uh, that's not why I was able to sure. teach there, but he, he helped me. So it's certainly nice to see a familiar face. Um, yes. Father and I'm all. sure I wasn't hard with a PhD from MIT as well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was able to go there. I, you know, we didn't really, with an engineering degree, you'd think I'd be in the School of Engineering, which would be in St. Augustine, mm -hmm. Trinidad. Uh, but, but according to my scholarship, really, I had to be in Jamaica. So I see. Um, I ended up teaching in the physics department there in a, a sort of a subsection called electronics, which had some electrical uh, engineering pieces, but wasn't a full engineering degree. Mm -hmm. um, and when we were moving back to Jamaica, we thought, you know what, we're going to be there for like 10 years. We're going to try to give it 10 years to help really change the country. Mm -hmm. We have this education, this experience. We've been exposed to the top, you know, the, the top of the top, the MIT Nobel Prize winners and We've learned wow. so much. We felt like we learned so much that we could really contribute to help develop the country. Absolutely. Um, after about a year, we, we shortened that to five years. And then after about <laughs> another half a year, we shortened that to two years. And okay. we said, oh, giving up. And why, why was that? Um, I realized that the people there were not as excited necessarily as I was. Um, like I thought they would welcome me with open arms. Oh, Andrew, you've returned from MIT. Come and teach us everything you know so that we can yes. use some of what you've learned and we can incorporate it into our systems and make them better. Uh, but it was not like that. And hmm. of course, I was a little naive. It was more like they were like, well, who are you? I've been here slaving away, building up the country. You can just come in here and take over. I see. Um, that was more the attitude that we encountered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's challenging. Yeah. Very challenging. That was, that was somewhat challenging. <laughs> and then dealing with the, the crime, there was some, some crime was rampant in Jamaica at the time. Um, and my wife and I said, well, I don't, know, I don't know how long it would take for us to get, you know, in, in Jamaica, the seniority is, is very important. They mm -hmm. respect, they respect age, mm -hmm. experience, and being young, uh, I just, we just didn't see how we were going to have really influence, have that influence, right. Um, and so the opportunity came up that we could go back to Texas Instruments. Yeah. Uh, and we did. Okay. So it was a little disappointing, but um, but hopefully we come full circle, yeah. you know. Uh, to, to... Coming back though to teaching at UE, um, what I found was 
the students, the undergrad students, were, there were like two different groups. There was one group of students that were not, that were sort of somewhat poor, you know, they weren't, uh, they weren't that talented necessarily, and they weren't interested in doing work, like putting in the work. Mm-hmm. Um, they just wanted to get through the course, get a passing grade in the course. Okay. Then there was another group of students who were actually really, really good. And, and I, my understanding is that they would have normally applied to the engineering program and then been in Trinidad, but they didn't want to leave Jamaica because they had loved ones, they had family. Yes. So they had to stay and not do engineering in Trinidad, but do something else like physics in, uh, in, in the Mono campus. Um, I may be interpreting some of this. Uh, sure, that, sure. Was, that was what I saw. And so you had these kind of two groups. Uh, and so it was frustrating. I ended up, I tried to help the group that I thought maybe needed more of the help, but again, they didn't necessarily want it. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I remember teaching in a class and I was trying to explain, um, explain this idea. Like, this is how you should really think about it if you want to be able to figure out this idea. And someone raised their hand and said, sir, is this, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> what, what, what's going to be on a test? I want to know what's on a test so I can know what answer I need to put so I can pass. Mm-hmm. And I almost walked out of the classroom and I was just so discouraged. Um, yes. But then I, I, I focused on finding the students who were uh, who wanted to be there, who wanted to learn, um, who are interested, and and sort of focus my energies on them. And there were there were a lot. Uh, there's talent there. Um, You know, there's one of them who I want to to get her to come on this podcast is um, she did computer science, then she went on to um, a graduate school, I think, in uh, Urbana in Illinois. Oh, nice. And then she's worked at LinkedIn, at and at different startups, and she's a like, very, very successful um, software engineer in the Valley, in Silicon Valley. Um, and so that, that's just an example. There are some other students who are just like, super, super smart and talented. Um, and, and I enjoyed working with them. Yeah. So, so I would say I, I advise you, uh, if you don't, if you're not interested in the material, don't don't study that that subject. Um, yeah, move on to no something. Forcing you, yeah, yeah. Find what you love and and do it so that you can really uh, engage and and you know have a good. It's better for you. It's better for the professor. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, great. Thanks for, for sharing that. And so the next stage that I wanted to hop into, uh, you worked at Texas Instruments. And, you know, if people hear about Texas Instruments these days, they like, they look at their calculator and like, oh yeah, okay, Texas Instruments, who cares? But can you reshare with us sort of the significance of that company? Because what I understand, Texas Instruments was a quite a serious engineering and research company, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, you working there, uh, is pretty big deal, right? Back in in those days. Yes, yeah, so the project I was working on it's called DLP. DLP. Um, yes, and it is a very very interesting technology, sort of a 
no one else in the world makes a technology like this. It's sort of, sort of unique and it's very, very fascinating. It's a um, display chip, mm -hmm. uh, but on the surface of this display chip, so instead of just silicon, they put some layers on top and have little microscopic pieces that move that flip back and forth. What? And that's how they control the display. Yeah, they're little mirrors. That's crazy. Okay, so each mirror is a pixel and you shine light on it and projects it out onto the screen. And uh, you can create an image this way. And so uh, they sell these chips. Um, they're used in digital cinema projectors. They're used in conference room projectors. Um, in fact, they're, they're the best uh, conference room projectors that you could get. And nowadays, no one uses a conference room projector anymore. They just use a big flat screen. But um, yes. Huh. Uh, but it, uh, it's fascinating, fascinating technology. But they have these quirks. So they're unique. You need to solve these algorithm problems. How do you put those mirrors in the way to make the image look the best, to get the best, brightest possible? Mm -hmm. so it's a big synchronization problem. Big synchronization well. problem, yes. Um, because the colors, to get different colors, it turns out uh, that's a synchronization. That's one of the things that requires synchronization. The color that's hitting the chip is changing red to green to blue. There's a color wheel in the old days, we use a color wheel that was spinning. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's how you got different colors by turning the mirrors on at the right time, all that kind of stuff. So very fascinating, very interesting project. Um, I enjoyed working there, actually. But I had a couple of things that happened there which, which impacted me. One was, so after my first year of working there, I applied for this promotion. It's sort of the tech ladder is what they call it. Mm -hmm. uh, you become a member of the technical staff of the title that you get, and then you can kind of progress over your career, member, senior member, distinguished member, and so on. Right. And they say that, well, after a year, no one gets it after a year. Don't even. Don't even try. Don't yeah. even try. But I thought I would try because I'd, I'd done some work. I'd, I'd probably file like maybe five or six patents trying to solve these problems mm -hmm. that the company was working on. Um, and I didn't get it. And I was very like discouraged. I was crushed. Hmm. I'd never really dealt with rejection, major rejection in my life up to that point. Um, you know, I, I mentioned my wife, we're, we're dating in high school. So I'd never yes. had like a, a big breakup where somebody rejected me. Mm -hmm. um, mm. Like I applied to MIT, I got in. Right. I applied to this job to teach. I got it, you know. Mm. Um, Even getting to Texas Instruments, you got in there as well. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, I, I didn't realize how psychologically uh, that would that would be. And, and I didn't, because of that, I didn't do, I would say I, I stopped putting in an effort at work for about a year. Wow. Um, I mean, I'll go to work and do whatever, but I, my heart wasn't in it uh, like yes. it was before. And um, so that was a big lesson for me is, is sort of how to deal with that, to realize that, well, don't take it personally, but also to realize that those things really do affect me and mm -hmm. I need to be a little more careful, a little more cautious. Um, so that was, that was one, one, you know, I eventually applied the next year and got it. Um, I the other thing that happened too is that because I, it, it, 
I learned to try to do what I wanted to do, right? Not necessarily what my boss wanted me to do. So the stuff <laughs> that the job that I wanted, that's the job I would do. Yeah. Like I wanted to innovate and, and, and solve problems. And so I just got the people together who I thought would be interested in that and said, hey, let's meet. Let's meet for breakfast every week and we'll just mm -hmm. come up with like bring up either bring a problem or bring a solution and we'll just brainstorm and just write things down and just like try to see what we can come up with. And they probably watching like what the hell are you doing? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then when they realized that well, they need some some new ideas, some new business ideas because mm -hmm. projectors sales are going down and what are we gonna do? They started a team, they call it the white space team, which was like a small team of like 10 people to try to look at, investigate, well, what else, what are the new ideas that we should be working on? And because I was already doing this, they asked me to be part of the team. So it was, Very cool. that, was that was my lesson is, you know, they say dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Mm -hmm. I would say just do the job you want, not the job you have. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that, that, that bad. Um, you, you moved on from Texas Instruments to a company called, I believe it's called, give me one sec, Sindiant. Sindiant. Yeah. And can you tell us about your experience there? I, I guess Texas Instrument was, as I was saying, you know, a very well-known renowned company. And then I, I hadn't necessarily heard of the next company that you moved to. So what was that experience like? And, and tell us about that. Yeah, let me tell you how I got there. So uh, there was a recession sort of happening. The economy wasn't doing very well. And like I mentioned, um, they saw the projector sales going down mm -hmm. and they were a little concerned. And the, just the company in general, DLP was a very small piece of Texas Instruments, uh, was a, a much bigger company. And um, so they laid off about 25% of the workforce, including oh. me. Hmm. I was laid off. I was. I didn't just mm -hmm. leave Texas Instruments of my own. Belief. So that's a big rejection. That's that's a like... big rejection. Mm -hmm. uh, the the lesson I learned from that is is that uh, when you're working for a company, it, it's it's business. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some people feel bad about. Well, I don't want to leave this company that has done, you know, done all these things for me and move somewhere else. But don't worry about that. Listen, the company <laughs> will fire you as soon as it is in their best interest to do so. Um, yep. Yeah, so don't don't feel like it's a personal relationship, like loyalty and all this. Mm -hmm. no, it's, a, it's a business relationship that you have with your company, and, 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 and you should view it that way. Um, and so I was out of work for a while. I, I was, uh, um, there was a recession. It's very difficult to find jobs. And this company, Syndiant, um, they were like a competitor to DLP. They were making a, a different kind of display chip. Okay. Uh, they eventually called me back for a second interview after a while. Um, and I was able to work there. And it was one of the best jobs, I think, of my career. It was a small Good. company. Mm -hmm. So you um, knew everybody, you knew all the players. Everybody. Everybody was was talented. Right? Everybody was good, and the team worked together. I mean, you, you felt this like we're on the same team. We're we're doing this together to get to this point, um, and it was fantastic. Not only that, because they were a small company and they were up against companies like 
TI and all of the state companies, mm -hmm. they needed every competitive advantage that they could find. So they needed to innovate. And so I, I, had, I had all these ideas like, oh, let's shrink the memory by adding in some image compression to the pipeline, stuff like that. And at Texas Instruments, I felt like I was coming up with these ideas. Oh, let's do this. And I would go talk to someone and be like, ah, well, we tried that. Uh, well, you know, you're not really going to get that much performance. Ah, that seems a little mm. risky. It, it was different. Um, but at this new company, Sydney, I said, hey, let's, let's do image compression so we can trick the memory. They were like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And, hmm. and now uh, I had to like fulfill on the promise of how to come up with the, the algorithm to make it happen. And I exactly laid out. And so, um, so I, I, I did that. And you know, we were able to, to really produce some of the best uh, L-cost displays. L-cost is what they were called. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a good, I was there for, I want to say four years. Um, it was good. It was very, very good. That's amazing. And I think that's a good maybe startup lesson to some degree as well, right? Where you yeah. come in as an expert and it's a smaller team, you know, the players and in order to survive, you have to, to innovate. Yes. The, the downside with a startup, of course, is that they didn't have any money. Right. Okay. Uh, and so every like two or three months, they were running out of money and they had to go raise money. Hmm. Um, or the investors had to like float them more money, stuff like that. So it, it was a little bit. It's a hard environment to innovate for sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was all this uncertainty of, well, I'm going to have a job, you know, next month. Yeah. Um, different, different type of stress. I'm different type of stress. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I was okay with, with that kind of risk, I think, because at the time, um, it was just me and my wife. Uh, no big deal. If I lost my job, I think you know, I just try to find a new one, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason I really left, end up leaving Syndiant is uh, we wanted to adopt some kids. Okay. Um, we had met the kids. We kind of fell in love with them. The two kids wanted to adopt them. And because of how adoption process works, like for a year, you can't change jobs or anything. You can't wow. move. Because, uh, you know, the start off with... stability. Yeah, yeah. They start off with the, what's called the home visit. They come and check out your home and check out your job situation. And then they begin this year-long process of paperwork, eventually get the kids at the end. Um, but if at any point you change jobs or you move, they have to start over from scratch, you know? So, oh. so being in a startup uh, that was running out of money every few months wasn't ideal. And that's when I um, happened to get a call from a, a Google recruiter. Again, this, this is sort of my life, looking back at my life, I see all these coincidences of timing that line up to get me to where I am. And, you know, I personally believe in, sort of divine providence and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a greater hand at work. Um, but in any case, it just seems remarkable to me to have all these things line up. One of them was the, yeah, that call from the Google recruiter, right? When I was, we're considering adopting. Um, similarly, 
when I was about to fly over to Google to do the interview, I uh, messaged a friend of mine who had a startup who worked at Texas Instruments with me, who had a startup, and the startup was in Silicon Valley. And I was like, hey, uh, you know, I want to put you as a reference to my Google application. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he says, oh, that's very interesting that you're applying to Google. Turns out my startup company, this is still secret, but my startup company is in the process of being acquired by Google. Oh, no way. So he was able to get into Google that way. He was able mm-hmm. to give me a, like an internal reference and write up some yep. uh, uh, some recommendations because of he, you know, we worked on. He, he was one of the ones who who came to those breakfast sessions that we had, these brainstorming meetings. Ah. He's a smart guy, still at Google, still at sort of top of his game. Um, and again, seems like more than a coincidence, but... Um, but you had done the work many years before by just taking a chance and bringing people together, trying to innovate without permission. And, yeah. it, you know, those things, uh, they paid off, you know, even by divine providence still yeah. organizing things. Yeah. Uh, you got that opportunity. That's cool. Yeah. So, so tell us about your time at, at Google, right? I think at least in my own journey during my PhD, Google was something that was top of my mind. You know, I put this thing, all right, I'm going to get into Google by X date. And naturally you, you fall off that cliff and didn't necessarily hit that goal. Um, but even now that I'm at NVIDIA, uh, even my, one of my interview experiences, uh, I saw someone, they were like, yeah, we only take the best. And I kind of walked up to the guy and said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not there right now. Uh, I'll, I'll, I will see you one day. And when I got into NVIDIA, I, I called him and said, Hey, I don't know if you remember me. And he actually did, which was kind of cool. So just sort of echoing that story about, you know, getting to maybe some of these top companies granted, you know, they're not the end all be all of the world, but it, it is kind of cool to at least um, get your work measured at that level. So tell us about that experience at Google. Yeah, Google was, um, was, was a lot of fun. I, um, when we're, at Texas Instruments and that team that they, the white space team, I remember one of the meetings we, the guy in charge printed out a, a list of like how Google innovates. And we're like, hey, we've got to mm-hmm. follow this. And we're like, okay, yeah, we're trying to think like Google, how to think like Google. Um, so it's funny that um, both me and and the guy who whose company was acquired by Google uh, were in the room at the time and we ended up working at Google. Um, but yeah, Google definitely has some, they had some shifts, you know, some paradigm shifting ideas. Uh, and it was fun to see. The thing that impressed me most about Google was just how much money they had. Yeah. You know, coming from a startup where I think, like I needed a new laptop and I had to convince someone to be like, hey, well, why don't you use a secondhand laptop that <clears> no one's <throat> using? Um, whereas at Google, man, they just, they bought me a, a laptop, they bought me a desktop, they bought me a desktop for my home, they got mm. me like a phone, they, you know, it just, everywhere I look, I see like these huge color printers of like laser jet printers and like you just grab equipment off the shelf if you need like something and the food was all free and the drinks were all free, the coffee was all free and the gym was free and the laundry, you could do laundry for free. and it, 
they provide these shows. I mean, it was it was it was uh, mind blowing um, that they have so much money. But they they really try to spend the money on making the employees' lives easier, better, mm-hmm. um, so that they can kind of keep them productive. Um, and yeah, it was good. It was good. Uh, I worked on a couple of projects early on in a compression team, and then one of the guys there was leaving to to start this. AR VR team, he knew I was very interested uh, because we had done some some talking about 3D displays. In fact, I put together a document. You know, you know, like I mentioned, do the job you want. Yes. So I didn't really want this comp- video compression job. I was just doing it. But on the side, I was like finding out who's interested in 3D displays and in VR. And I, I wrote a document and shared it with a bunch of people that they could edit. And it was like, how do you create like a 3D holographic display? Uh, I, I kind of highlighted like step by step on how, how you'd want to get there. Um, and the document got out of hand. Uh, too many people were eventually added and they're all contributing and they all had different ideas of how to get mm-hmm. there. And uh, so, so I abandoned that eventually. But, but because of that, someone identified me and said, hey, why don't you come join us in this ARVR team? That's so so cool. I joined that team. I was there for four years. Um, most of the team was working on VR in terms of headsets, VR headsets that you'd put on. Um, but again, by a number of coincidences and things lining up, stars, stars aligning, uh, me and, and two other guys decided we we're going to make a, not a 3D display you wear on your head, but a 3D display that sits on a desk and is like a, it's like a TV. Mm-hmm. And we were going to use it to do, um, Kind of what we're doing here, sort of video conferencing, right? So I'm looking at you now, but I'm, I see you like a little picture of you on my computer screen. And we said, well, we could use, we could combine these technologies to make a system where instead of seeing a picture of someone in a screen, you see them there in 3D in front of you, like you're. Yeah, you see the depth and you see. Yeah. That's cool. Like you're having dinner together. And I'm eating here. Someone's at our side table. You see them there. Um, and that journey to get to get that project built and done uh, was too much details to get into now. But if you uh, if you if you Google it, uh, Google Project Starline, and you'll see sort of mm-hmm. what that, that turned into. Um, and it was very very interesting. All the, the pieces that had to come together to to make that. I was sort of in charge of this, the display, this 3D holographic display. Um, and in, in fact, the videos you see showing it don't really do it justice because you're just watching a video of it. It's right. totally different from seeing it in real life. So, um, but anyway, Great. Uh, it was interesting. Google, Google was the sort of best of both worlds in that it was like a startup. They needed the innovation. They were excited about ideas. They wanted to turn those ideas into real things. But at the same time, they had very deep pockets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you had great people doing good ideas that were costing, costing a lot of money to work on these things. But Google was willing to just put the bill, um, sort of indefinitely, because they were making, they were like printing money at Google. Um, and I don't know how they managed to do that, but. Yeah, I don't think it, that's the case anymore. I think they, they've gotten a lot more strict. Uh, yes, the have. CFO is, you know, yes. cracking whips Ruth. on them. So based on that project, I, that's natural to think why Magic Leap essentially wanted to 
to poach you or you probably got interested in Magic Leap as well, being in the ARVR world? Yes. Um, so how I ended up at Magic Leap, again, um, it was one of those things of the stars aligning. Um, mm -hmm. What happened was, so I was working at Google, the team was growing now with like 15 people. This project was, uh, I was beginning to have differences. Different people had sort of different ideas of how to get the project mm -hmm. move forward. And, you know, it was, it was fine. It was fine. It was, I would have loved to continue working on a project at Google. Um, but we're considering, hey, let, let me apply outside of Google and maybe I can at least use a job offer to negotiate a better salary or something. Um, so I applied to Magic Leap. It's a great company. At the time, they weren't even, they hadn't released their product yet. So a lot of people thought it was kind of fake or like mm -hmm. a scam. And so I wanted to see myself. So I, I was like, hey, apply here. Maybe if I can go get a demo at least as part of the job interview, which right. I did. They, were, they gave me a demo as part of the job interview. I was like, oh, oh wow. Okay, I thought this was not real. Now when I see the demo, I can see they're, they're really doing some amazing stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then the day that I got an offer from Magic Leap, uh, I also found out that um, my wife was expecting uh, a baby. So we this was somewhat unexpected news and mm -hmm. um and magic leap was located in florida okay we're from jamaica one, one of the difficulties with living in california uh it was just so far okay time so zone time and zone is a big deal. you just like you don't call people as much because when they're having dinner you're still at work when you're mm -hmm. having dinner they're asleep you know uh, travel too. getting my parents to, to come visit us uh, over there in California was, was hard for them to fly so far. Um, and, you know, I have cousins and so on who, who, who I would love to see more often. And flying to Jamaica was a, a whole ordeal. Yeah. Uh, and so when we knew that a baby was coming, we knew that we wanted to live closer to Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And uh, because this offer from Magic Leap was in Florida, um we decided to take it and move to florida so that's kind of how yeah that happened um yeah and turns out florida is great uh florida the proximity to jamaica has been great mm -hmm. the two years i was living here before the pandemic i flew down to jamaica several times my parents flew up several times um the caribbean food here is is great there's just like so many caribbean folks who live here in florida uh you know real real roti you know, real roti here um yeah it's like you're not far from home at all right yeah not far from home yeah and no taxes is that that helps a lot on your, on your salary so yeah no income no state income tax in florida that is true and, and just the cost of living is is way less than than california mm -hmm. bay area it's just crazy so Great. So, you know, you, you had a good time at Magic Leap. And then uh, I think NVIDIA saw how much career capital you had accumulated. And you kind of shared with us um, sort of how you had felt about NVIDIA at the beginning. But tell us what's your, what has your journey been, been like so far at NVIDIA? And 
yeah, what, what, what lessons would you think you can take away from that for people yeah. to know? Um, one of the, the reasons I think NVIDIA worked out is, this is somewhat strange, but because of the pandemic, okay, uh, the pandemic happened, um, and everybody started to work remotely. And so NVIDIA was able to offer me and say, hey, you can keep living in Florida. Um, and I don't think they would have necessarily done that, although they were, they were a little bit more of a remote company anyway before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly pandemic sealed the deal. Like, um, of course, yeah, of course, things work in Florida. Whereas when I was talking to Apple and interviewed with Apple, like I'd mentioned, and they were like, oh, okay, if you want, uh, if you want to live in Florida, okay, you got to fly here. Um, every so often. And... One week or every month or something like that. And, um, or you got to move at least up to Orlando, where there's an Apple office in Orlando, uh, mm. things like that. Um, and so it's kind of one of the perks, not perks, perks is the, is, is the wrong word. One of the benefits of the pandemic is that it's allowed some of this freedom, uh, especially you know, in my situation. So, yes. Um, but the thing that impresses me about NVIDIA is they're really strategic. The CEO Jensen uh, is, it seems like he is doing too much. Like it's almost like that movie, remember that movie where there were this magician, but it's really twins and there's two of him. Oh yeah, and I and I think like you know he would magically like die or something, and then he would pop up, but exactly. it was really two of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was two right. Yeah, yeah. And nobody knew, not even his wife. Like, you know, he kept it a secret from his wife. So he would, his wife was like, "How come sometimes we have such a good relationship, and then like sometimes for weeks on end we can't get along?" And mm-hmm. you know, but he, he had to really keep it secret to to make the, the um, trick work. Yeah, work. Yeah, he didn't tell anybody. Um, I feel like Jensen must be like that because he's doing so much. He's involved in every aspect of the company. He's helping make decisions down to like some of the details. Like, like I mentioned, he, he called me up when I was considering coming here, you know, that's crazy. Uh, where, where does he find time to do that kind of thing? So it's, it's unbelievable to, to kind of see him work, um, see the way he thinks, uh, he just like everything he predicts, I think is like, has actually happened. And he's done a really, really good job just understanding technology, understanding the capabilities, understanding where where tech is going and, and getting in front of it. Um, you know, being able to provide compute. The future of compute is all NVIDIA is going to be the, the key provider there. So yeah, um, I didn't think a lot about compute before I got to NVIDIA. And, and now that I'm here, you can actually see why it makes so much sense you know, to the way that they're architecting data centers versus yeah. sort of how it exists now, it would be quite a big game changer. Yeah, exactly. And the future, uh, the demand for computers is only going to go up in the future. So yes, we're going to need more, more cloud compute, more cloud storage, more, all that. It's, we need more of it. And NVIDIA is the, is the primary, is going to be the primary provider of all that. So, um, it's good. I, I, I didn't realize NVIDIA had, such a strong software and algorithm and research piece mm-hmm. either before I joined. So uh, it's really, it's really great to work with some of the top talent. Um, you know, 
Google is very strong in software. That's that's everybody knows that. But yeah. their hardware piece is a little bit. Mm, they're not so great. They're they're, tr they're trying to kind of boost up their hardware. They have a hardware org now, and they're trying to make make phones and make you know Google Home and stuff. And and so you gotta you know give them props that they're trying to improve. But internally, their systems are not set up to like reward hardware engineers. Um, Interesting. It's all like their perf, which is their annual review process, is all set up to reward software engineers who release things and who make these contributions to the code base. Mm -hmm. And if you're a hardware engineer who maybe it takes 12 months from you design a chip to when a chip comes in, like how do you even put that how in? How do you your... quantify that, your contribution? Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah, well, Magic Leap I thought was had a better balance between hardware and software, um, but uh, Nvidia really is I think really good in terms of that balance, right? They're mm -hmm. making hardware, they're making chips, they they know what's needed to to make that happen, you know, the kind of rigor and and attention to detail and uh, even just financially. Um, making sure you don't you don't spend too much money, um, you 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 try things out, you prove things out, validate them before you spend the money, all that kind of stuff that Google is still sort of learning. Um, they're good at that, but then they have these amazing uh, software teams as well, the Omniverse team, you know, doing mm -hmm. some really really cool software. Um, the drive sim, you know, robotics. Uh, yeah, robotics is a big one. Autonomous vehicles, uh, everything. So, um, I'm impressed. I, I, I'm still even. Uh, also, um, the other one I was going to mention, uh, G Sync, G Sync monitors. They make reference designs for monitors. So, I'm a display guy. I was able to find a couple of people who uh, are, are into displays and and. Talk to them. I was able to find people who are into robotics and talk to them. I was able to find mm -hmm. people who are into AR, VR and talk to them. Um, so there's all these sub pockets within the company that you're able to sort of interact with, right? Yeah, yeah. And and they are doing very well financially, sort of mm -hmm. maybe better than anyone would have expected. Um, you know, they kind of stumble into uh, like cryptocurrency mining, I think yes. was good for them. That kind of, uh, the pandemic has sort of been good financially. More people are at home. More people are like, well, instead of spending money going out, let me spend a little extra money on this uh, GPU so I can have a good gaming experience at home and at least, mm -hmm. at least pretend I'm, I'm somewhere. Interacting. Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Great. Um, so, so in, in the last segment of the podcast, um, now that you've kind of given us a, a deep, very deep dive on your career and, you know, pulled out some lessons uh, from it, um, what advice would you give around, let's say, cultivating passion? You did mention, hey, you, you should kind of go do something that you're pretty interested in and to some degree um, get paid well. But what advice would you give someone to maybe try to find that, um, be it early in their career or even maybe later stage career? You might have had to just go with this career just to survive to get to a place where you can now start to explore so any thoughts there 
generally speaking, I think people will pay you if you do something well. Okay. And I think you'll do something well if you do something you love. Um, now, what do you say to someone who says, I, I don't know if I love to do anything? Uh, that can't be true. There must be something that you really love to do. Um, if you love to read books, even, you can get into that. Um, you, can, you can write book reviews. You can read books. You can become an editor. You can write books. If you, if you love reading books, maybe you can use that to, to, to be able to become an author. So I think you should explore early on when you're in kind of high school, even college, explore, but find those things that you love and, and, and dive into them. You can become the best in the world. There's something that you can become the best in the world at. Mm -hmm. um, so find what it is and, and, and do it. And go for it. Yeah. Great. Cool. Yeah. So last, last three questions uh, what two pieces of advice and and you said in my opinion a lot of advice uh, throughout which uh, hopefully we were able to to pull out or you remembered uh, so what two pieces of advice would you give to a high schooler uh, a person in college or even one piece of advice to a person in high school college and a professional um in high school i would say try a, try to get involved in a bunch of things outside of academics Sports, music, mm -hmm. um, the arts. So expand your, go broad, I would say, in high school. Yes. Um, and ignore, the second piece of advice would be to ignore the, there's a strong sort of popularity competition in high school. Mm -hmm. People you can tend to spend a lot of energy on that um, or a lot of emotional energy when you get left out of that. Um, just ignore that. that. That's irrelevant. That doesn't come into play um, later on in life. Yeah. Okay. Now, now to college. Um, a few pieces of advice if you're a college student. <laughs> And these are easy, these are things that you can do, anybody can do, these are not difficult, but you're going to hear this advice and you're gonna um, think it's too simple, it can't be that easy. Uh, one, attend all your lectures, sit at the front of the mm. classroom. Okay. In the first row if possible. Yes. And whenever the professor asks a question to the class, Raise your hand and attempt to give an answer. Mm -hmm. Even if it's the wrong one. Even if it's the wrong one. You might look like a fool, um, but the professor will remember you. And eventually, you'll, it'll force you to have to listen so that you won't embarrass sound yourself. stupid. Yeah, you won't embarrass yourself. Um, do the homework on the day it's assigned, not on the day before it's due. Okay, that's a big one. Someone should have be beating me with the head uh, on my head with a stick with that one. Yeah, but and at, attend the the office hours that your professor has. A lot of them will have an office hours. Attend it, go to it, mm -hmm. find out when it is, go to it, ask some questions, or you can just introduce yourself. Yes, 
or even just sit there and listen in on some other people's questions. Hmm. Um, just do those things. And, uh, you know, and, and don't be afraid. You'll, you'll probably end up changing majors at some point. That's okay. Yeah. And then for professional. Professional. Mm -hmm. Let me hear you. Professional. Okay, well, one of them is uh, certainly do uh, do the job you want. You know, yeah, I really like that one. Um, even if you don't get paid for it, right? Even if you don't get paid for it. Mm -hmm. If you're in tech also, I would say um, you should be interviewing for a new job at least once every two years or maybe once a year mm, okay so if you even if it's the first year in your job even it's the first year all um, right okay okay you've been there for a year just go on an interview mm -hmm. even if you plan to turn down an offer in fact okay. the, the more offers you turn down is the higher paying your um your field will be okay the, the people will be like oh man after to get that guy and uh, yeah and and i think this is one of the reasons why um on the business side people get paid a little bit more mm -hmm. than that on the engineering side interesting um, i'll keep that one for sure yes and you know read read some uh read a couple of books read a book on negotiation uh like there's one called never split the difference mm -hmm. regardless how to negotiate and negotiate salaries and uh, be open to changing jobs and careers, uh, you know, fairly often, like every two to three years. I mean, you don't have to, but be open to it. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, you know, learn new stuff. Just because you've been doing something for five years doesn't mean you got to do it for the next five years. You can yeah. Up, you do something completely new. Yeah. And go. I appreciate, appreciate you calling those out. Now, the last two questions I have, the first one is, how do you think your Caribbean heritage has contributed to your success during your career? That's a big thing we try to highlight in the show. Any yeah. thoughts there? Um, yes, certainly the school, that, that rigor in, in school, I think helped me. Mm -hmm. um, even though I said that it didn't fit my personality, I think it still was good. Uh, to have sort of a, a schooling that was discipline oriented. Yes. Um, also, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on this. This could be a whole, um, you know, a whole nother podcast, but the, the idea of race. Hmm. Um, growing up in the Caribbean, you see people of different races they're everybody's mixed i i, I myself am mixed multiple mm -hmm. races and you don't necessarily have the same biases, classification classifications mm -hmm. even classifications for yourself and, and for example growing up in jamaica i certainly saw um people in leadership who are black the police force most of them are mm -hmm. black Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, successful people are black. It's not uncommon. Whereas in America, because of the um, because of what's been going on for years, uh, things are still 
still not maybe where they should be. And, and so if you're black growing up in America, you don't see, you didn't see the same things. You didn't see leaders who look like you, mm-hmm, you, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it, it can have a, a detrimental effect. So, so I think a Caribbean person has a little bit of an advantage in that they, they know that it's okay. I mean, they, they don't limit themselves necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they weren't deprived in the same way, right? They, they had opportunities, which uh, maybe someone who was African-American growing up here just didn't have. Um, anyway, that's a whole nother. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, good thing to call out there. And, you know, I'm sure if anyone has American friends and, and Caribbean friends, uh, you, you you get to see a distinct difference sort of in behavior and outlook sometimes. Yeah. Um, that's very apparent. Great. And my last, uh, I guess I forgot a question, but um, if you can summarize, what are three principles you live by? I've, I've really enjoyed listening to your career journey and how you've put certain things forward. But if you want to summarize it um, in three bullets. Oh, I should have maybe given this some thought to, <laughs> to be able to pull out um, bullets. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that basically everything in life I learned from playing poker. Well, okay. I didn't see that coming, but yeah, I'm just saying. It, it has sort of changed my perspective. Everything in life to me is... Uh, a game, there's a game. When I'm talking to my wife about uh, what we should do, how, how we should parent the kids and so on, or we, we, we have to figure something out where we should go. It's a game, it's a negotiation. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing. Um, and there's game theory elements that come into play. Like, oh, you gotta give a little bit here. You gotta demand something here. You gotta, what, what you tolerate, what you don't tolerate. Uh, and so, um, that's one thing to live by. Everything is a game, uh, and uh, I'm a student of the game, so okay. to speak. Um, and yeah, read up in, in your spare time. Read up on some game theory and 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 the the, the results there. Uh, let's see. Uh, next one is um, I think I have to put sort of a spiritual absolutely self, high priority. Um, mm-hmm. why is that? Because if that's not there, I don't think the rest of life is, for me, it's not worth living. It's not playing worth playing the game unless there is some, some goal, some, some higher calling, some, something bigger. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things, uh, I live by, um, and then the other one, I would say it's, it's, it's feelings. Understand, try to un- learn, study and learn emotions and try to understand them because those are the things that will uh, motivate you. That, um, I mean, if you can control your own emotions, you can sort of do anything. Yeah. Um, and so if you can understand emotions and how those work, it's sort of difficult for an engineer, I think, because engineering, you don't necessarily, you aren't taught this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but you can figure it out. I mean, it's, it's, you're an engineer. 
right? Yeah, you can engineer. Yeah, you just you just <laughs> kind of reverse engineer the system. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so that's it. Great. Uh, those are three pretty cool ones. Uh, the poker one I, I didn't see coming at all. Uh, and my last question: uh, What three books would you recommend people to read? Oh uh, yes, I should have definitely prepared this. But one of them I already mentioned: uh, Never Split the Difference. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, have that one okay. right on the shelf behind me there. So. Yes. Um, there's another one. It's, I think, the beginning of infinity. Oh. Is that a math uh, book? Beginning of infinity. N no, no. And maybe, maybe if I need to search up these authors and stuff, uh, you can put Sure, no, but I, I could find them and, and, and put them in the notes. Yeah. Um, and then... Hmm. Um, the innovator's dilemma. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Innovator's dilemma. Never heard of that one. I'm gonna find that one for sure. But once again, Andrew, I uh, appreciate it. I've I've enjoyed listening to your career journey. I've I've put some things in my back pocket and probably need to go start studying uh, to get in, you know, ready to interview at some point. And you know, appreciate your time today and, and thanks for all the lessons. Yeah, thanks, Mark. This was uh, super exciting. It was, a, it was a pleasure to be able to share. Love what you're doing with the podcast. Keep it up. Uh, doing great work. So, and I'm gonna send some some of my friends your way. Um, Much appreciated. Some more Jamaicans on here.